Statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm grateful to have Jennifer Hickey back on the show as my guest. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Hickey is a postdoctoral fellow at the Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative at Emory Law. She's interested in reproductive justice, police misconduct, government accountability, and technology and society. So today we're going to talk a little bit about what it's been like to return to the office as state laws and institutional policies shift. And a lot of us find ourselves returning to campus or to the office. Jennifer, you've been back on campus for a little while, right? Tell me a little bit about that. What's that been like? I have actually, uh, I think primarily because my summer research was difficult to do with my four-year-old running around the house. So that sort of prompted me to come back uh, a little earlier than I might otherwise have, uh, which I know has been the case for a lot of people who have been forced to work at home. Um, You know, I was fully vaccinated when I came back and I waited until the end of the spring semester. So there haven't really been very many students around uh, over the summer. And um, you know, Emory's policies have been fairly good uh, about requiring masks. And, uh, you know, we're starting to see more faculty and staff in the building uh, each day as we get closer to the fall semester. Uh, but, you know, in the beginning, when I came back towards the beginning of the summer, it was uh, a bit of a ghost town, uh, which was interesting, but, you know, definitely a lot quieter than being at home with a four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I bet. <laughs> a lot of people weren't able to work from home and they also had some intense repercussions from COVID-19, everybody did. But for those folks who ended up isolating at home or just transitioning to remote work completely, parents like yourself who had to raise their children and school them at home and like help them with their homeschooling online, all of that, you know, it was really stressful for a lot of people in different ways. As you're returning back to the office, do you feel like you're still feeling some of the after effects of that? Is it difficult to transition back because of this new normal that you've become accustomed to? I think in general, it's been it's been interesting to find myself interacting with people again, more so than I had in the previous year or so. Um, You know, I mean, there's certainly been, I guess, transition issues just in the sense of childcare and and things like that. And, you know, absolutely, I feel fortunate that my son is not old enough to have worried about having to homeschool or anything like that. I can't even imagine what that must be like for parents having to deal with that on top of everything else that the pandemic has, has caused for people. Uh, for me, it's really just been kind of the shock of having to talk to people again <laughs> and remembering what that's like, just, you know, small talk in the hallways or, or that kind of thing. Um, so really, I don't have it so bad in the grand scheme of things. Um, like I said, there have been childcare difficulties as well, which I know a lot of people are facing with the pandemic. Um, But yeah, personally, I think, you know, it could be so much worse uh, for me. Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of socializing that 
fall by the wayside for folks who chose to isolate or who chose to remain at home. Do you think that there will be repercussions on the cohort of children, and I suppose adults as well, but primarily children who require socialization just as humans in the world as part of their normal development? Do you think that there will be repercussions for that particular cohort? And do you think that, and if so, what challenges do you think they might end up facing going forward? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's particularly tough because. Yes, I suppose it is going to be, you know, a problem. Um, certainly, I know that's motivated a lot of people to, you know, put their children in school when maybe they would not have otherwise done it. You know, that there's one thing that we're learning from the pandemic is that there's a lot of benefits to the educational system beyond just actually, you know, learning your ABCs, right? Um, and certainly the socialization that kids get is a huge part of that. And I know that's motivated people, you know, to put their kids into school when maybe they weren't 100% comfortable with the safety risks of the pandemic. Um, so certainly, you know, not my area of expertise, but certainly I would imagine that there is fallout, you know, from the lack of socialization. Uh, that was definitely something we had to consider because uh, we were about to start my son in preschool when the pandemic first started. And we decided, you know, for us with him being as young as he is, that wasn't a trade-off we were willing to make and we held off. Um, but I think, too, it raises the interesting point that, you know, thus far, our discussion makes it seem as though we're kind of at the end <laughs> of the pandemic. And obviously, the Delta variant has sort of introduced some snags to the way that we as a society are sort of pretending like this is over. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I realized that so far, our discussion seems to be capturing it from a, oh, what's it like to go back after we're coming out of isolation? But it's, you know, we've also got that added tension of perhaps we shouldn't be coming out of isolation just yet. And how do we face these, the challenge that the Delta variant is bringing? Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. So I'm oh. glad you brought it up. <laughs> and as we are returning what are your thoughts about the risk level? Do you feel safe? And if you don't feel safe, it sounds like from what you just told me, you're not quite certain that it's such a good idea for us to go back right now. Uh, what level of responsibility do you feel like the institutions that are allowing or coercing the people they're responsible for to come back, what, what level of responsibility do you think they have for that? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So, I mean, Emory, for example, being a private university, um, you know, can and, and finally decided to require vaccination for both students and faculty. So, you know, when I'm at Emory, I, I definitely feel a level of safety that um, I don't necessarily feel, you know, going to, I'm, I'm starting a program, PhD program at a state university in the fall. So I'm at the moment expected to attend in-person classes in a place where by state law, they can't require masks, they can't require vaccines, they cannot even ask if the students are vaccinated. You know, so there's students putting themselves at risk like myself in the state university system, but also professors, right? I mean, you've got large classes. I mean, as a graduate student, I'm not going to be necessarily in a 400 person seminar, but you've got professors teaching these undergraduate classes that are enormous with absolutely no protections in place. And, and not even just that the institution can decide to do that. Their state government in Georgia is prohibiting them from putting these protections in place. Uh, so in that sense, you know, that's a 
massive governmental failing <laughs> and institutional failing from that perspective. So it's interesting because so much of what we do with vulnerability theory is, you know, pushing for state responsibility and, and you know, focusing more on the public side of things versus the private. And yet at a private university, this is a good example because I feel significantly safer at a private university than I do a public one. And we should really be questioning that. And, you know, why is it that that's the case? Uh, why do you think that's the case? And why do you think that our state government has decided to make it so that you can't even ask anyone if they're vaccinated? Um, yeah, you know, it was interesting when Governor Kemp, you know, signed that executive order prohibiting, I guess, specifically around, it was in May, and it was when we were talking a lot about vaccine passports, you know, but basically this idea that you have to show proof of vaccination in order to receive a service or enter a business. And so the executive order that he actually promulgated was prohibiting, you know, any sort of state agency or facility that provides state services to require a vaccine passport or otherwise just ask for any sort of proof. And in the tweet, when he announced the executive order, he said something, actually, I'll read it because I was just looking at it again and I thought it was really interesting. Vaccination is a personal decision between each citizen and a medical professional, not state government. And I think that one sentence says so much about what is going on right now. Um, just this idea that, you know, vaccination is this highly individualistic personal choice that has absolutely no societal repercussions. And so to protect this like individual freedom and liberty that rhetorically we're so focused on as a society, you know, the state government is taking steps to prove to you that they have no intention of interfering with your individual rights. And I think it's that ethos, you know, that, that leads to adoption of these harmful policies, you know, whereas vulnerability theory would have us look at this in the complete opposite way. You know, the state is responsibility, it has responsible for the resilience of its citizens and should be doing active, taking active steps to help us um, navigate this rather than taking active steps to take a step back, I guess, active steps backwards, right? This idea that, you know, the primary focus, at least in Georgia, but other states I know are the same way, the primary focus is to show you just how little we as a state are doing, right? This is all your individual choice, your individual freedom, you know, just do what you want. We're not going to interfere. Um, and, and I think that ethos that we, we spend so much time, I guess, uh, arguing against as vulnerability theory scholars is exactly what's causing this. <laughs> so at the same time that, the, that our state government in Georgia is trying so hard to tell us that it's all about our individual rights and that we're going to protect our individual rights or a particular notion of individual rights over like community health, our federal government is actually like pushing vaccination. Um, can you speak a bit to the tension between the two and perhaps what level of like, perhaps how much of that is caused by this level of mistrust that a lot of Americans have? They don't really trust the federal government right now. And, you know, we've had several years of severe gaslighting um, from a particular, from that particular institution. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, although, I mean, I mean, I do think the federal government now is 
adopting some policies that are, you know, at least like you said, encouraging vaccination. Um, but at the same time, I, I actually don't necessarily think that what they're doing is significantly better than the state governments. Um, I, I mean, the message is, I suppose, slightly different and that's, that's good. Um, but I'm not necessarily certain at this point that it's even so much of a federalism issue. I mean, I mean, I do take your point that, you know, people tend to trust local government more than, you know, the big government of, of federal, uh, but kind of in my mind, it's all just not enough. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, certainly distrust of the federal government is going to lead people to actively disregard the advice of the CDC, but at the same time, they're not making it easy <laughs> to follow their advice in the sense that, you know, they're, I know they're doing the best they can with the science they have, but some of the things they've done, such as, you know, coming out now they realize a little too early and saying that people can unmask, you know, that's done a lot of damage. Um, and that's not helping people who maybe already don't have that level of trust in the federal government, as you pointed out, right. And like, that's just sort of fuel for the fire there. And again, you know, mistakes are made. Nobody's perfect. Things are changing. You know, there is the Delta variant. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of people questioned that guidance early on from the CDC. Like it just, why, why allow people to unmask this early when our numbers are so low in terms of how many people have been vaccinated? It just seemed risky. Um, so, you know, there is definitely a trust factor in there and that didn't help matters. Um, but I think, you know, overall, um, I do think a stronger state response is warranted, you know, whether people trust the state or not, if that makes any sense. What sort of response would you like to see and what principles would it rely on? I, I mean, again, you know, thinking about, like you mentioned before, community health, you know, social responsibility, um, at the very least, I, I would like to, you know, kind of stop encouraging the individual choice rhetoric. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, just on a personal level, I mean, I have many friends that I, I you know, on both sides of the political aisle who are saying the same thing, right? Even people who have been very responsible throughout the pandemic about masking and getting vaccinations for themselves and social distancing are saying that vaccines are a personal choice. And to me, on a personal level, that's bothersome because I think they're the exact opposite of a personal choice. I mean, whether or not you get vaccinated has a social impact. Um, and I think we as a society collectively need to recognize that, that this is not about the individual who is or is not vaccinated. This is about the larger society. Um, and in general, I think that's true of mask requirements. I mean, we're forgetting that children can't be vaccinated, you know, to, to allow people to go in places unmasked um, or to unvaccinate and then be around children who have no choice in the matter at this point because they cannot be vaccinated is terribly socially irresponsible. And while I would love if everybody would just collectively decide to step up and, and show that level of social responsibility, it is also the state's responsibility to ensure the collective public health. Um, they can't just leave it up to the masses, regardless of whether the masses would do it or not, in my opinion. I think the state has a responsibility for the resilience of its citizens. And based on that responsibility, they need to be taking firmer steps um, you know, 
to require vaccinations, require masks, you know, at the very least not actively prevent that from happening, as is the case in Georgia, where state universities can't even do these things. Um, so, you know, it's not a nuanced policy answer, but just like on a large scale theoretical exploration, um, we're not doing well with the very weak, oh, it's your personal choice. State government shouldn't be involved in your decision to get vaccinated. That's not the right message. Yeah. And I know that in, I think it was out in California, they were entering people into a lottery if they would get vaccinated. I know oh, that right. Are, like the, like the incentive program. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like there are other, there are other ways, there are other state policies that could incentivize people to get vaccinated. Like you said, you know, it's an incentive. Um, but it's really, it's, there's this really interesting tension here. Like folks in the United States culturally respond really well to incentives, right? Like we respond really well if we're like, oh, we could take this vaccination and get entered into like a contest to win like some random car or something. Right. Even if there's a very, very, very low chance of you actually getting that car. But the moment that any, even, even if it's just a private business, the moment that any private business starts to require something, starts to say, actually you have to be vaccinated if you want to come inside, you have to wear a mask if you want to come inside, which is like, you know, they're, their prerogative and their choice. In the U.S., there's this cultural outcry. Have you noticed that that's different from the news that you've been hearing outside from outside of the U.S.? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, <laughs> I, I definitely think, you know, what we hear from some of our visiting scholars, for example, or just other people affiliated with, with the Vulnerability and Human Condition Initiative that live in other countries, um, you know, even where there's a, a stronger government response, you know, like there's, they're quicker to do stay at home mandates and, and those types of things. Um, but also there seems to be, you know, a, a stronger sense of social responsibility, even just within citizens um, than, than what we see here. So I think it's kind of twofold um, from that perspective. And certainly I can't speak for every country, but yes, I mean, I, I do hear different responses um, from other countries. And it's funny when you talk about incentives, because you're right. I mean, that's always been sort of the way, um, you know, when you were talking about the lottery system, I was like, maybe we should just give everybody tax credits for being vaccinated. <laughs> Would that be the trick? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so yeah, you're right. That is, that is definitely, you know, a result of our, of our neoliberal system of governance and just generally the kind of, you know, American spirit <laughs> that we have here. Yeah, I mean, another thing that's been really difficult in terms of encouraging people to get vaccinated is that there have been so many misinformation campaigns. I don't know where they're coming from or why, but there have been very intense and like effective misinformation campaigns. Um, what are your thoughts on those? Yeah, it's really interesting. I had I had someone the other day um, tell me something about, you know, along the lines of vaccination as a personal choice. You know, we were just having a discussion about it and they were saying something about how, um, you know, you could still transmit the virus just the same whether you were vaccinated or not. And I mean, this is the person that I consider to be pretty well informed, but the data didn't, at least, you know, prior to the Delta variant, the data really does not support that at all. Um, I believe that the CDC had come out with something to the effect of like, 
90% less likely to transmit the virus, even if you have it. I mean, yes, we all know it's possible to still get it when you're vaccinated. That's, you know, that's the thing I think that people understand, but, uh, but even, you know, the point of that is just to say that like, uh, even people that seem very well informed oftentimes don't necessarily get the correct information. Um, and I don't know the origins of, of, you know, some of these misinformation campaigns. Um, you know, I don't know that all of it is necessarily nefarious. I mean, it's like anything else. People just hear something from their neighbor and they believe it and it gets passed on and changed over time. Um, and, you know, living in the era of social media, that's obviously, it's much easier to disseminate, you know, misinformation um, than maybe it was previously. So um, it's certainly a huge problem, but I don't even really know how to begin to crack that one in terms of, of how you, other than just, again, hammering on the science and, you know, making sure that, you know, we're taking active steps to put the correct information out there, that the state is taking active steps to put the, the correct information out there. But I think tackling misinformation is, you know, a much larger animal and not that something doesn't need to be done about it. <laughs> uh, and, you know, maybe that's something that research could focus on more in the future. Um, but you know, as of right now, I don't even know how you begin to approach that or what the motivations for it even are. Yeah. Do you think that it's linked at all to the increasing distrust that we have in our government? Yeah. I, I mean, I do think to some point, anything that the government is telling you to do is, you know, it, there's a faction of people who, you know, anything the government is telling them to do is automatically suspect. Um, so yes, I mean, I do think that it's, it's linked to that obviously as well. Well, as you're moving into starting your classes, you're starting next week, right? Uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah. In a couple of weeks. Okay. AGA. No. Yeah. It's UGA, right? Yep. Yeah. So you're starting in a couple of weeks at UGA. Your classes as of now are going to be in person. Meanwhile, Delta cases have been rising exponentially, especially, you know, all over, but in the U.S. And I know in Alabama, which is right next door to Georgia, I'm not sure what the stats are in Georgia. But, you know, there's a lot going on. How are you feeling going into that? Um, do you feel respected or valued by the institutions? Actually, I don't know if that's a good question for me to make you answer on a podcast that's being publicly disseminated. So I'm going to take that back. Yeah. Do you think UGA is completely irresponsible? <laughs> good luck in your grad program. Yeah. But it's funny because, you know, I mean, I would, they, you know, as an institution, I mean, their hands are tied, right? Mm. Like, I mean, it is by they can't do anything you know right. so I don't I don't feel so bad vilifying camp in this scenario yeah. you know what yeah. I mean like, <laughs> yeah but I mean it's also like UGA can't do specific things but there are certainly other ways that you could encourage people to get vaccinated you know like you could have a candy drive or like a pizza party you're doing you some, actually I just saw something on Twitter although I did not see what they were doing but it was some sort of um oh my gosh I just that's so funny I just it's like Brian Kemp knows we're talking about him. I just got a Twitter notification. <laughs> yeah, it says recent tweet you should see just came out. Georgia is not moving backwards. No lockdowns, no statewide mandates. I encourage my fellow Georgians to talk to their doctor and go get their shot. So what? <laughs> Was that from Kemp? Yeah, it's a tweet from Kemp. He's so confused. 
Actually, he's not confused. He's confusing and he's doing it on purpose. Well, I mean, it, it, but it does, it does align, right? With the rhetoric. Like, it's like, I, I personally think we should raise our vaccination rates. And I would personally encourage you again to make this decision with your medical professional. But I, as, as a state official, cannot you know, tell you to do this. It's not my place. That's an individual choice, right? Mm. He's on message. I mean, yeah, not, 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 all, like, not all right wings are like anti-vax, right? <laughs> like he's on message. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it fits with the rhetoric, but it's like irresponsible rhetoric and it doesn't really give a clear message. And part of being a good leader is like clear, effective messaging, right? And so here the message is not clear. Like the message should either be, like if if you are a leader, people are looking to you for guidance. So the message either needs to be, if X, Y, and Z, you should get vaccinated. If X, Y, and Z, you should not get vaccinated, right? Like those are your, those are basically your options if you're being a responsible leader in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, no, I mean, he's definitely equivocating, right? I mean, that's a political move, you know, it's sort of like, I'm going to talk to everybody here, you know, I mean, I'm going to do my expected part and say, we're not locking down. We're not, I mean, and moving backwards, right? Like that's such an interesting choice of words because I mean, that's the problem, right? The genie's out of the bottle. And instead of saying, Hey, there's new, there's a whole new variant of this disease. This is not, I mean, moving backwards makes it sound like, you know, we're somehow taking steps because we've all just decided that the existing threat is somehow a problem again, but it's not, it's not acknowledging that this is a new, in a way, this is a new issue, right? There's a new variant. It's behaving in ways that we did not expect, you know, it's much more contagious and, you know, it would be a perfectly reasonable response to implement safety measures against this new variant. Right. And, and Mm -hmm. to call it moving backwards is problematic. Um, You know, because it it reminds me a lot of like early days, you know, when maybe just the very beginning of the pandemic vaccinations and people were just starting to get vaccinated and you would hear all these commercials on the radio, like now that business is, you know, now that we're all back to business as usual. And now that we're returning to normal and, and all this stuff, and it's like, it's a little early for that, you know? And I kind of feel like it's one of those things where we've had that kind of ethos for so long of returning to normal and back to usual and business as usual that now this is the message that that we're getting is that you know if we do if we take any sort of safety measures in light of this new scientific information about the delta variant we're moving backwards because we were normal everything was normal we were back to usual <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah and it's also really difficult i think psychologically like for an entire population it's got to be really difficult to be not wealthy or to just be like an average American to be suffering economically from the pandemic, emotionally, mentally from being, you know, from going through a pandemic and having to lock down, being isolated, having all of this fear and like not really knowing what's real and what's not because there is so much misinformation out there because there is this lack of trust in our government and our institutions. And then meanwhile, you're seeing like billionaires going to the moon, you know, like you're seeing billionaires flying out in space. And I'm sure that with the rhetoric that we have here around personal responsibility and like the American dream myth, like it still kind of exists in a way, like that's still something people strive for. Like we still want to wake up tomorrow and like magically be a billionaire. 
But when you're not working at all, when you're at home, I can see how it would feel further and further and further away. And like, when you see these folks literally going into space, while you and your family and your friends are like stuck at home and suffering, and you can see your community crumbling around you, like that has to be so defeating. Yeah, absolutely. And actually what you, you touched on something that I, I had wanted to mention earlier and forgot to, you know, again, using Georgia as the example, since that's the state I know the best being, you know, a resident of, of Georgia. Um, one of the things that I thought was also unforgivable was, you know, implementing work requirements for unemployment again. Um, when that, when that happened, I mean, so talk about a state not being responsive to its citizens, right? I mean, so, you know, at this point, not only are you stuck at home watching a billionaire in space, but you are now required to go out and work, whether you feel safe doing it or not. Um, you know, there are no longer any options for you, you know, to stay home and, and receive unemployment, you know, despite again, numbers starting to surge with the Delta variant, um, And, you know, given this latest messaging about how we're not moving backwards with lockdowns or state mandates, it seems unlikely that, you know, the work requirement is going to be lifted at least anytime soon for unemployment. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's really, I would imagine it's really discouraging at this point, um, you know, to, to once again be in the position where you have to decide, you know, whether to put food on the table or keep your family safe. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're not getting any institutional help or true guidance. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you at least feel safe at Emory. Yeah. Excellent advertising for a postdoctoral. <laughs> I know, but it's true. I'm actually really glad he required it for the staff too, because I would have had to have called that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the staff weren't required, right? But now I don't have to. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, I wanted to make the point, and I, I at the end, I decided not to, but I had thought about making the point that it's, you know, it's such a privileged thing, right? I mean, if you can afford to go to Emory, then you're safer. But if you've got to go to the state yeah. university system, then, you know, oh, too bad. I hope you don't get COVID. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that is the point that's, you know, that's, that's worth making. I mean, just, you know, in the sense that, I mean, it just reflects more of the, you know, massive problems we have with income inequality in general and, and how that, you know, socially stratifies, um, in the United States. I mean, this is a perfect example of that, right? I mean, if you've got the resources to afford to go to a private university where the safety is better then good for you, but otherwise, you know, good luck at the state university system. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it's it's a shame that that typifies that, you know, but I mean, it's true just because the private universities have the wiggle room to do stuff like that. They're not, you know, being forced by the state government to, to not implement those policies. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a really good point. Like we've been seeing this in different ways throughout the pandemic, you know, like the folks who have been able to stay at home versus the ones who had to go into work. And now even students going back to school, like you're saying, the ones who can afford to go to a private school. And usually if you can afford to go to a private school, you're able to get into one. It means that there are like a whole host of other privileges and other steps up that you've already had to like be able to have access to that opportunity at all, right? Those folks are going to be so much safer than like you're saying, the ones who are in public schools. And sometimes that's a choice that people have made, you know, sometimes 
in some cases, it's a free choice where they've been like, oh yeah, like I could totally afford to go to a private school, no big deal, but I'm choosing to go to a state school instead. Mm-hmm. You know, like sometimes that happens, Sure, but yeah. it's generally in the United States unlikely, especially with the cost situation. Yeah. yeah. And I would bet if you were, you know, worried about COVID and you could afford to go to private school, you might switch, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, because yeah, you have that option. So yeah, it really, I mean, that's just a stereotypical, I guess, example of, of that type of income inequality issue that we have here. It's, it's yeah. you know, the privileging of those who can afford the private institutions that are just sadly doing better. <laughs> Mm-hmm. well again not ending on a positive note <laughs> what would you like what would you like listeners to remember from our interview today <laughs> any takeaways stay home I don't know <laughs> but also like be a billionaire so you can just go to space and not have to deal with yeah. COVID yeah just just go to space and stay there <laughs> um, <laughs> until the pandemic is over <laughs> The government can't help you. Um. It's so weird, though, how the Delta variant is worse because, well, how it is uh, more harmful because isn't it in a virus that's like in any living, in anything's best interest evolutionarily, like you're supposed to evolve to be less fatal to your host. Hmm. So it's yeah. so wild to me that Delta is being, that Delta is like more fatal because that is not in the virus's best interest. That's true. You know, it's interesting people who have been talking about how Darwinian it is, right? Because it's like, you know, the unvaccinated are the ones who are going to be, you know, suffer. And, and like, I'm like, you know, that's a, that's a disturbing narrative because it means that, you know, the non-fit will not survive and we should be concerned regardless of what your reasons are for not being vaccinated. We should be concerned about our fellow humans dying from, <laughs> from virus, right? And like but, access is such a huge issue too. Like not true. everybody can take time off of work and right. get vaccinated and go wait in line or whatever. It's right. like, there aren't places that are close enough. Like I know folks in Atlanta who don't have health insurance, who have to drive like miles to get vaccinated, like hours, you know, mm-hmm. and they were, they were the lucky ones. They were able, they had transportation. They were able to take time off of work. But I'm sorry, you were saying. No, no, that's a good point. I mean, that narrative ignores, you know, access issues. It ignores the fact that children can't get vaccinated yet. I mean, it just ignores a, you know, aside from being somewhat cruel, even to those who have made the deliberate decision to not be vaccinated, you know, I think it really mm-hmm. obscures um, the larger social issues like like you highlighted, right, with being able to access the vaccine as well. Um, so, yeah. and yeah. on top of that, it's like, it's not like we're living outside of any world that we've created, right? Like the social institute, like the, the way our society is set up, it benefits certain people. And it's because it's been created and tweaked to benefit certain people. So it's not as though this is some like magical and natural state of being or anything, Right. Yeah. And I think, again, that's where looking at things from a vulnerability perspective is so helpful, right? Because you're mostly analyzing the social institutions, you know, that, as you point out, are our creation, right? And the ways in which they unequally privilege. Uh, and, and absolutely, that's a huge factor. And so I guess, you know, looking at the virus, the virus is just some sort of like, you know, 
Darwinian other thing intent on destroying parts of humanity, you know, outside of the social context in which the virus is spreading, you know, is, is also dangerous, right? That's cruel and heartless. I know, I know. On top of that, yeah. Okay, again, not positive, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, what would you like listeners to remember about our interview takeaways? What's your, what's your takeaway or what takeaway would you like folks to have? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just, you know, that now more than ever, it's clear what a vulnerability perspective really brings to the table for us as, you know, a collective and a way for us to examine our social institutions and our relationships with one another and our sense of civic responsibility um, and how we as a nation and, and as a world um, can do better in, in combating this pandemic and then, you know, helping our fellow humans and, and call for a better response from our state government. Uh, we deserve a lot better than, than what we're seeing. Um, but we also, as, as a society, need to remember that our active, our actions or non-actions, you know, have social ramifications. We're not making these individual choices in a bubble and, you know, vaccination and mask wearing and social distancing and all of those things are not just personal choices. Uh, They have social impacts and we as a society should realize that and also call for our government to realize that and have a stronger response to try to get us out of the woods here. Thank you so much for coming back as a guest and spending this time with me. I appreciate that, Jennifer. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah. (laughs) This has been an episode of Voices in Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.